Welcome to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. We did the original war series between November of 2013 and August of 2014. As we followed the course of America from a pre-war era where isolationism and anti-war feelings dominated through the war and into the post-war era. We revisited this series in 2016 to add a Memorial Day episode, but I thought I was pretty much done with the series. I'd heard, uh, you know, quite a few World War II programs since then, and I've thought, you know, that might have been nice, might have been something I would have considered including, but I didn't really feel the need to add anything to this 277 episode series that we did. However, that changed uh, this past year when I began to listen to some episodes of The Passing Parade, hosted by John Nesbitt. Uh, I did include uh, a couple of uh, episodes of the John Charles Thomas uh, program, where uh, Mr. Nesbitt uh, did some of his dramatic readings. But I discovered he also had his own program that was focused on these stories that he told. And I listened to his D-Day program and realized that this needed to be part of the war. Now, this will post on the front page of the war website. And then after a few weeks, I will backdate the post so that it will appear directly after uh, episode 200 uh, for those who listen to it as the years go on. But I think on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, it's more than appropriate to revisit the war and to bring you this brief message from John Nesbitt. This program of the Passing Parade originally aired June the 6th, 1944, Let's go ahead and take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Columbia Broadcasting System brings you the voice of John Nesbitt in The Passing Parade. Should any bulletins of news interest come in during the next few minutes, they will be presented at once or immediately before the conclusion of this special D-Day edition, which we have requested from America's celebrated teller of true tales, John Nesbitt. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, for June the 6th and the 31st chapter in the 1944 series of our Passing Parade. The time is exactly 100 years from today. The scene is a schoolroom on a beautiful day in June, June the 6th, 2044. And you and I are long since in our graves. The furniture around us in our living rooms at this moment has been lost or become expensive antiques in the art stores. And those newspapers with their huge headlines that are now lying near the radio set will have become yellow, brittle documents preserved in the great museums of this day, 100 years from now. In their classroom of plastic and metal, our great-great-grandchildren are gathered, waiting for the lesson to begin. They'll be staring out through the glass walls, wishing they were anywhere in the world but stuck in a schoolroom, having to look at a lot more historical moving pictures flashed on the screen, hearing transcriptions of radio broadcasts that were given generations ago, staring down at microfilm newsreels showing the people of 1944 dressed in their funny clothes and living their funny, forgotten lives. Now the old history professor comes in, and he stands beside the picture screen, and he smiles around at the drowsy young faces of our great-great-grandchildren and says, Does anyone here know what day this is? No answer. 
Well, it is exactly 100 years ago today that one of the greatest events since the fall of Rome took place on the face of the earth. That event, young ladies and gentlemen, was called the invasion of Europe by the democracies. On a beautiful moonlit night 100 years ago, out from the shores of England swept myriads of peculiarly shaped boats guarded by more than 4,000 naval vessels. In these boats there were tens of thousands of very young men, almost as young as you are, who looked straight ahead with awful terror gripping them, some were seasick, and a special secret remedy which the Allies had been collecting for about a year was given to them. And on many of these peculiarly shaped steel vessels, they were actually operating tables with surgeons ready to perform major surgical treatments right on the beaches of France if necessary. These young men who gazed through the moonlight with their gray, tense faces a hundred years ago were sailing into the jaws of the most magnificent fighting machine ever known up until that time. This machine was called the German Wehrmacht. It had been designed by military geniuses, tried out, improved, and repaired and tested. It was experienced, it was veteran, and it was desperate. But the young men from the cliffs of England faced it silently, and they moved on in. They knew that the stupendous machine they were to destroy had many tricks. One of them was the magnificent Spandau machine gun, which could shoot 600 bullets in the time that earlier models could shoot 200. Another was a new plastic landmine that could not be discovered by the Allied magnetic detectors. These plastic and even wooden mines, sometimes called booby traps in that day, were strewn so thickly that it was believed that a man could not take 12 paces on the beach without setting one off. Burning oil to float down rivers, pipes to carry it out to the surface of the sea if necessary, so that incendiary bombs could ignite it when they fell. There were rocket-piercing bombs that could go straight through a landing barge. There were radio-controlled rocket bombs. There were more concrete forts, hidden pillboxes, mountains of barbed wire, with deadly electric current running through them than had ever been collected in all time. Now the glaring-eyed young men still came on, you see, because that was what they had been told to do, and they were obedient to the death. But with them, as they moved across the channel, they brought something against that wonderful defense. They brought what we now refer to in our history texts as an American way of making war. This was the technique of waiting with nerve-shattering patience until their nation, being the strongest industrial nation of all, could bring overwhelming power to bear upon a single objective. They had learned it in their own civil war long before that, when their General Grant had waited to mass unbelievable power before making the final attacks. So now, as the dawn rose up from the French coast, the peoples of the world woke up to learn that the Allies, too, had constructed a giant, the strategy of overwhelming power. 11,000 airplanes, they say, moved over the heads of the young men in the landing barges. And do you know how many airplanes is 11,000? Well, if you stood in the middle of a smooth desert with the horizon visible all around you in a great circle, as much of the sky as your eye could see in every direction would only hold 1,000 airplanes. And on that morning of June the 6th, 1944, the Allies had done the unbelievable. They had put into the heavens 1,100% more airplanes than any human being standing on the ground could see in the air at any one time. Now, you see, the old professor will continue, gazing around that classroom full of our great-great-grandchildren. Up until that time in history, an invasion by crossing water had come to be construed as an impossibility. The Spanish Armada had tried it with disaster... Julius Caesar had nearly failed to conquer Britain at first when he landed from the sea, although there were just a handful of savages to oppose him. 
The Allies themselves had tried it in what they called their first world war and failed terribly at the Dardanelles. They'd had the courage to try again a generation later on the coast of Norway at a place called Narvik. And again they met with bloody disaster. But even while their enemy was shouting with glee and calling them decadent peoples, they licked their wounds and they tried again. They filled their skies at home with the smoke of 10,000 factories. They nearly drained the earth below their feet of their precious oil reserves. They dared to wreck their economic system if necessary to provide the means. And their civilians, your own great-great-grandparents, would go to little white offices where needles would be placed into their arms, their living blood drawn out, and its plasma put in little jars which were sent off to their soldiers. No one, I suppose, who didn't live through that day a hundred years ago, and of course there are only a very, very few old persons who dimly remember it now, can ever really know what it was. Although we have thousands of reels of specially preserved moving picture film and the metal recordings of General Eisenhower's proclamation, and we've already played the record of the President's speech and the words of the King of England of that time and so on. Yet, young ladies and gentlemen, I wish you especially to realize and remember this that we wouldn't be looking at this film or hearing these century-old records. We would not be studying these documents if the vast army of young men that crossed the channel on the morning of June 6th in 1944 had not finally won their battle. You would not be allowed to see history as it really happened, and I would not be allowed to teach it as it really happened. You would be at this moment marching on a parade ground, having your muscles hardened for new wars, and having your brains bound into a metal case of narrow ideas and rules. And the word democracy would, of course, be forbidden in this classroom. And all of this, young ladies and gentlemen of the history class, is why we never permit you to forget this historical number, June 6, 1944. Because a century of history has taken place since then, you'll probably have trouble in remembering all the names and places. The names of Eisenhower and Clark and Montgomery and Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin and Marshall, perhaps you'll forget them. And such strange places as Le Havre and Dieppe and Dunkirk. They are now of interest, these names, chiefly to military experts. But one thing, young ladies and gentlemen, you must know and recall forever, or you will never be considered educated men and women of this 21st century. And that is the name which we finally came to use to describe that stupendous series of battles. You must never forget that a hundred years ago today occurred the supreme hour in the War of Liberation. And then I suppose that those descendants of ours, those children who are yet to be born, will busily take down some notes in their loose-leaf folders, and they'll watch the films which at this moment have not yet been developed from the negative, and yet which were taken by the way of every phase of the landings this morning. And they will listen to excerpts from the broadcast that we have been listening to today, which have all been recorded and which will be transferred to permanent metal forms for the use of future historians. But perhaps it won't mean very much to those children in the future if they're happy and normal kids. This day of our world, this day might mean nothing to them, in which we have prayed ardently for the success of our arms, and during which millions of American mothers have been so overcome as to have to leave the radio and go to their bedrooms to look down at photographs of their sons. A hundred years from today, it will have become one more date in the history lesson, like 1492 and 1066 and 1914 were to us. And the moment the story of this day of days has ended, those kids will dash out into the playing field and they'll start having fun. And that's quite all right, isn't it? It's for them that the landing barges crossed the channel this morning. 
It is for them that our young men offer their lives, because the children of a hundred years from now will be free. And now to conclude the passing parade for this evening, I would plan to read any of the bulletins which have come in during the past uh, ten minutes. However, even history does sleep at night, and owing to the time element of the various military headquarters, the 3.30 communique has concluded, probably, the official reports of great interest for this remarkable series of hours through which we have just passed. And as we close the record for the evening, then, a summary of the opinions published and broadcast so far does seem to add up, finally, to the following, that these were certainly the chief surprises, that casualties did appear to have been much lower than expected, and that the German Air Force very definitely did not go into large-scale action. Among the most interesting possibilities that began to emerge this evening after people had time to think the whole thing over has been that one of the chief reasons for the initial success of the landings may have been that our American army actually has had greater experience in this particular kind of warfare. They've been in intensive training for it for at least a year, and no other army has ever made so many amphibious landings as our own during these attacks on Morocco and Algiers and Sicily and Salerno and Anzio and Guadalcanal and all the many other islands of the Pacific. Other observers also have begun to note this evening that we might possibly have been able to strike higher up on the coast of Europe first in Holland, and that very possibly that would have brought about a much shorter war, but a far bloodier one. And it is conceived that we struck where we did because we believe that although this would take a little longer, it could be carried out with the fewest possible casualties. However, as brilliant a maneuver as the landing has been, few seem to expect it to be followed up now with sensational blows that will quickly knock out the enemy. And now it is pretty generally realized that the campaign to conquer a continent has just begun. And of course, the great question mark that emerged clearly this evening was that the German Luftwaffe might still be one of our most formidable enemies. A London commentator stated that Gerling may have merely been pretending when he called upon the Luftwaffe to sacrifice itself, as he stated in his speech of this morning, and that he probably has a much larger air force in reserve. How many planes Germany has left is the question, and upon its answer rests the fate of many a man who marches now toward Berlin. But since we're all very well informed on these details now, may I make the concluding observation that we are well informed because today has probably seen the most perfect and detailed handling of an immortal news story that has ever taken place. The news services have given the nation a magnificent demonstration of news reporting, and the radio networks have done a masterly public service. From the very moment that the networks flashed communique number one around the globe this morning, they have succeeded in sending us virtually every expert voice of the English-speaking world. Of course, we have been listening to all of them since very early this morning. And yet all of this stupendous story that has come to us from the radio has flowed out with dignity and with intelligence throughout the day. And I believe it will continue for the rest of the great campaign. And as a feat of engineering, by the way, and organization alone, this work of the radio networks has been one of the little victories of this time. The leading radio reporters for this day have been kings, haven't they? And prime ministers and presidents and famous generals and world leaders. And perhaps the one well-known news analyst of this time who doesn't seem to have been heard from is the new commander-in-chief of the enemy armies, our friend General Hitler. The other silent ones are the young men, aren't they, who did the fighting today. And yet, 
those silent ones did more today than all the spoken words of time's passing parade. And now to Mr. Carpenter for a moment, and then good night. CBS has just presented the celebrated American storyteller, John Nesbitt, in a special edition of his passing parade. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Welcome back. An incredible piece of commentary by Mr. Nesbitt, reminding us not only of the sacrifice that was made, but how little was ultimately asked for it, which is why it is so important to remember and to honor what they did. That's all for now. Thank you to Ken Curlin, KenCurlin.com, who provided the opening theme music. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.